We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Abe, hi. That's right. We're toning it down right now, because it's another episode of Out Now Nights. Nights. Abe and I, we do talk about movies. We do that quite often. We like doing it, but we like having these special bonus episodes, um, particularly these ones, because we record them at night. Yeah, they're, they're like nights, by the way. But yeah, they're some of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Where we uh, we get into some other random discussion. Um, sometimes it's very tangentially related, and then there's other times we have something kind of specific that we want to talk about. And this is something specific because we're going to talk about for this episode about Night Nights. Nice. We're going to. <laughs> <laughs> we, I can go all day. I'm yeah. like Captain America. <laughs> this is Nights 13, by the way. Nights 13. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the idea tonight is that we're going to talk about uh, it comes at night. Uh, it's part of a title, so I can't use it. I know. I, I wanted to see what you, I wanted to see what you'd do when I said night. But it wasn't in the, in the right context. But yeah, we're gonna talk about it. Comes at night, a new. Uh, I guess we can call it a. I call it a horror film because I have no problem calling it a horror film. We can get into genre discussion as we go along, but before all of that, let's get into who's joining us to discuss uh, it. Comes at night on this episode about now nights. Nice. <laughs> With us tonight, we have Professor Mike Dillon. Hello. MD PhD. I I didn't know you guys were doing this thing out now nights. Nights. We like to blindside people with the it's, nights. It's it's one of our nights. It's one of our uh, very like what Aaron described. It's very tangential, but it's also just more fun and very loose. So big fan. You guys covered the new Transformers on this. Oh, no, well, that that's uh, that's for the spoilers, that, yeah. that that's for the show proper. So don't worry about that. Well, isn't it called the last night? But oh. that but that's. Mike's yeah, but, got us. but it, but it's, spe- but it's spelled, uh, you know, Monty Python style, as in Knigget. So I mean, it's, uh, it's way different. <laughs> I tend to think of uh, no nights nights as just more of like <laughs> sometimes we just have general soapbox discussions, and just like when Aaron and I want to talk about like we want to rave about uh, or rant about something that we that we see in movies a lot. So it's just pretty fun, pretty loose. But I do like the idea that Mike's suggesting where we incorporate more movies simply because they have the word night in the title <laughs> for some degree. <laughs> Yeah, either the actual term N I G H T or K N I G H T. I don't want to go too far. I like the, but you'd be surprised how often the word night comes up in a in a movie title. So it'd be probably pretty well. For the time being, though, we are going to see how much of that makes it into the podcast. Probably all of it. Uh, But yes, we are. We're going to talk about it comes at night. Uh, This is the new film for director Trey Edward Schultz, who previously directed Cretia. Uh, Mike, have you seen Cretia? I have. Okay. Are you a fan? I think. Wait, I think I have. Um, it's a couple years back now, right? It's. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it was touring a couple years ago. It kind of came out wide last year for the. For, but yeah. I saw it. I remember being pretty positive on it. Yeah. Well, this is his follow-up feature, obviously. Um, yeah. And well, let's see. I know we're going to get into it, and we're going to go full spoilers on this, but for any listener, that's. You know, come this far into an It Comes at Night podcast and wondering, how far are they going to talk about it? We're going to talk about the whole thing. Uh, that's the and I should note that uh, Mike and I have seen the film, while Abe has not. I, I've made a judicious decision to sit in on here because I am curious about this movie, even though you guys are going to go full of spoilers. I don't so much mind because I think that it's probably going to add to my enjoyment when I watch it three years later. Well, I think, the, I think part of it, uh, we'll get into this, but I, I don't necessarily think certain developments are spoilers in the sense that the movie right. can't function by knowing this piece of information. Cause I think there's a lot of mood and atmosphere that really lends itself to why at least I appreciate what the film's doing. Yeah. It's, it's very experiential in that way. Mm-hmm. It's all about kind of 
admiring the craftsmanship and the, the, the tone that the film is setting. So I don't think you're missing out much, but that being said, Abe, I'm a little curious why the, uh, the non-urgency to go see this film. Yeah, I just, it, it's actually just been to my schedule for the, uh, the last few days, <laughs> which is, uh, kind of the unfortunate part. So that's really the biggest reason. Otherwise I would have seen it just to provide a little bit more of a, uh, an understanding of, of where you guys are coming from but it's just you can't squeeze it in between re-watching like pirates of the caribbean over and over that's correct it's actually pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest please so he he paused he, he, he paused at <laughs> world's end to join this podcast before getting back to the one. i was actually watching king of the crystal skull you know on amazon prime oh sure and, sure second time's and, better than the first and yeah it's better than the second that's what you i hear gotta, you gotta give it up for that shia but uh, no, I, I just hadn't had a, a chance to take a look at it. But from what I had heard and from what I had been, I don't, I didn't really read full on reviews, but just uh, it just was very intriguing to me. Um, so I, I do want to hear more about it because I don't know when I ha- I'm going to have the chance to check it out. Well, as we continue teasing our thoughts on the film, I, I will note that, Abe, you've pointed out kind of already that the movie has had certainly a, a reaction. Um, yes. it, it overall, like if I want to talk in terms of tomato meter, um, the film is rated fairly high. It's in like the, the 80 percentile somewhere. All right. Do you mean, do you mean tomato meter? If you say tomato meter, I say tomato meter. Got him. But, um, yeah, I, it's, it, you know, it has its fair share of critical praise. Uh, that said, um, there's a lot of people that walked out of this movie this weekend well specific actually you know, literally walked out of this movie during their screenings but also those that walked out thinking i don't know if i got the movie that i was expecting mm-hmm. um so it has provided some you know level of derision um i will also note that the cinema score of this movie was a d um which <laughs> tends to come with movies that the, that people walk into thinking one thing and walk out of thinking another thing especially with horror um, that tends to be the kind of result in that realm, regardless of if it's a quote-unquote good movie or bad movie. There's there's a way that the reaction kind of can be gauged, which I predicted when I walked out of the film. Uh, I thought this is a movie that I really liked, but certainly I can see people not digging. And sure enough, <laughs> as far as the scale of cinema score is concerned, I was pretty right on on that one. Um like- can I ask you a question before we move on? So I had not heard that people are walking out uh-huh. until you just mentioned it. So is there any chatter about why specifically they're walking out? We should clarify, it, it's, there's nothing particularly extreme or gory, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you hear about walkouts when something really violent happens something or something un- really Something happens. like uncomfortable violence, that right. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's not the case with this film. So I'm curious if there's any data on... Well, the people are walking out, or if they're all expressing a, a kind of a singular opinion about why they're so turned off enough to walk out of a paid screening. Well, I think as we're um, as we're as we're going to get into it, I, I think the and and there's people that you know paid for tickets that walked out of the movie, but um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think because I I was wondering this too because when you know walking into this movie. Um, knowing that it's from the director of Cretion. Now, I'm not expecting every single person to know exactly every detail about the making of the movie or what have you. But from my perspective, because I, I only saw one trailer for it, the like what, a teaser trailer for this film, and I got what I thought was going on here as far as like, okay, I want to see this. I'm not completely sure on what the story is or what have you, but I'm intrigued by it. And walking out of the film, like, all right, that's, regardless of my reaction to the film, 
that's more or less what I expected to get out of this film that's directed by the person that made Cretia. Now, not everybody uh, necessarily um, is going to have seen Cretia or what have you, but I can... Looking at the ads, because I kind of went over the ads after after the fact, the, the remaining trailers or what have you, I, I can see A24 is not necessarily playing a game, but I do think there's an emphasis on the film delivering more of perhaps something that's, you know, supernatural or something that, you know, that gives the title its title. It comes at night. Like, there's a, right. there might be an actual and, it that comes at night. Um this and from all the due diligence that I had been gathering, it seems like people were kind of upset that, about the pacing of the movie. Um, yeah, it I seemed mean, to move a little bit slower than they thought. Um, it kind of reminds me of reviews that The Witch got after mm-hmm. it came out. And people were like, well, this I, I was expecting a horror movie with a witch in it, and it's kind of more of a psychological thriller in The Witch. So that, I think that's what I was seeing more of. And the film, I think, it, I mean, it it works as a psychological thriller. That's a way, that's a way to kind of describe it. Again, we're gonna get. I keep teasing the fact that we're gonna get into it. We should I know, actually I get into can't it. Can't wait. But but to Mike, to Mike, to answer your question, I think that the 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 ads are, I guess, to some people selling a movie that they're not quite getting, um, as far as a kind of a, a big over the top horror experience, as in, instead of a kind of slower paced psychological thriller. I feel it also falls into this category of like there's always a horror movie of the moment, mm-hmm. like once a year, like Abe mentioned, The Witch. Uh, the year before that, or two years, maybe it was It Follows. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Right. They, all, they always come around, I don't know, the first half of the year, I feel like, where there's some film that really galvanizes public attention that's a horror film. And I feel like this maybe has some of that uh, backing to it. I and agree, I wonder, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think it, uh, there's a... surprise to hear that there are people kind of so turned off by it that they're walking out. Obviously, you could argue whether or not this falls into the horror category the same way something like the witch does but or or it follows right which is much more yeah and it it follows i I, it follows i always find a little bit more curious because that film does basically deliver on what it's trying to uh, delivers both on being this kind of you know higher brow uh horror film if you want to phrase it that way as well as being one that does deliver on having like you know creepy shit happen that's very overt and not ambiguous also no lying in the advertisement right yeah. there is it and it certainly follows yeah so yeah. if any i mean if anything i would just credit a24 for making very convincing trailers for people that are just like oh my god i can't wait to see this but at the same time it is delivering a movie that's di- that's perhaps differently different than others may have expected i didn't have that problem i feel regardless of how in the know i am on the director what have you i feel like as a horror fan and a moviegoer i could look at a trailer like this and think I see what you're doing, <laughs> and I don't necessarily expect some kind of like manifestation of it to come out. But I am intrigued by seeing this movie, and I felt like it delivered in that front. But I'm I'm glad you uh, mentioned A24 though, because I mean, it, you say that you kind of were attracted to this film because you liked the director's previous work, and and for me, one of the attractions to me was it's the latest A24 release. Yes, that's I, also I think a, yeah. yeah, I think they're. Uh, their resume or you know their string of really good genre films thus far has been pretty solid mm-hmm. um green room has been my favorite of these um thus far but they have a, they're developing a really good catalog and so that to me is something to pay attention to more than or it was anyway than uh is the director of Cretia. i mean yeah i i would say the a24 aspect played into it probably even more than the fact that it's from the director of Cretia, just because it's 
getting you know horror films that are you know something different something off the beaten path i when i if that a24 logo is in front of it let alone other indie studios i tend to be more intrigued by that because like all right this is this is clearly some kind of pickup like from some festival or what have you and it's probably delivering on something that i would be more interested in rather than some of the more commercially friendly horror films that come out over the years so yeah and you know yeah like you just said like a24 does have a you know a very solid track record as as far as just kind of the films that they're delivering even if they're not always fantastic and amazing they're certainly offering something different from the norm for the most part right um, super appreciated by the way yeah uh so let's get into it we've done enough dancing around i think it comes <laughs> in i think we should go into the film does he sleepwalk no he doesn't sleepwalk this doesn't make any sense because andrew is barely tall enough to reach those locks you're, you're positive that the door is already open? Yes. How can you be positive? It was the middle of the night. You could have been half asleep. He said he was sure. I was wide awake. I'm, I'm positive. Look, I'm not I, saying maybe... you're lying, Travis. I'm just saying it was the middle of the night. Maybe you're not remembering correctly. I know what I saw. I'm sorry, but the door was open before. All I right, I'm, I'm not going to jump to any conclusions, but just to be safe, I think that we all shouldn't interact for a day or so. Dad, I'm sure it's fine. Listen, I'm just taking proper precautions, okay? How's that sound? Does it sound fair to everybody? Yeah. We don't need to go kind of through a, a plot-based beat-by-beat thing, but I, I'll just uh, I'll get into kind of a, the setup of what the film is, uh, which is still kind of ambiguous, because I'm about to say some key sentences that describe the movie, but there are ways to interpret what's going on. But the suffice it to say, uh, the film, which stars Joel Edgerton as Paul, he is the... the he, he the, movie, the movie literally begins by making him become the the kind of the leader of the household that he's in. Um, we we arrive with a an older man who's the grand who's the the father of Paul's wife, played by Carmen Ajogo. Um, he's ravaged by disease of some kind. He just he looks sickly and basically on death's door. Um, some final words are said. Paul and and the grandson and Paul's son uh, Travis uh, they take they take the old man outside uh, Paul puts a pillow over his face and shoots him puts him in a hole and burns his body um, mm. cut to title I believe if I'm not mistaken I think that's how to just to set up the film um, as so as we kind of learn through not through specific details but just more of kind of guessing and just kind of picking up thoughts on it it appears that we're in like a post-apocalyptic time some kind of disease which affected the grandfather um has kind of taken over i don't know if it's the whole world or just a part of the world or what have you but something's gone on where paul and his family are now holed up in a, a house in the woods with all the windows boarded up and they're very concerned about getting sick so they want to stay inside and isolated at all costs um that's the basic kind of setup for the world that we're in uh things take a turn when another when another another man played by christopher abbott uh, what's his name? Uh, Will. He breaks into the house that they're in. Um, <clears throat> looking for supplies. He claims to have just been kind of out there looking for things. Paul doesn't... They, he doesn't know about it, whether or not to trust him. Chains him up outside. Then they, they're they determined what to do from there. So I'm going to leave it there for his kind of a plot description for now. Um, I'm impressed you remember all their names. <laughs> That's what IMDb is for. <laughs> I I do that part well. I, I, if I can come up with it in the right amount of time. Um, 
Well, so the key thing, right, is that it's there's been some kind of apocalypse. Yes. Um, I think it's one of the movie's strengths. Mm. <clears throat> and and then again, you've kind of gotten me thinking about it in a whole different light to know that people are kind of dissatisfied with how, uh, say, untraditional some of its genre elements are. But one of the things that it does, um, it avoids uh, certain conventions that you would see in a post-apocalyptic film. So, like, for instance, a lot of those movies open with a montage of news footage of the world falling apart, which yep. we've come to expect from these type of films, right? Um the scene that they open with, which you just described, is comparatively very intimate and I thought very high impact. Um, but the movie definitely doesn't situate us in a specific time or place and doesn't explain what's happened to the world. Um, apart from the fact that we know that there's some kind of killer virus of some kind. Right? Yeah. There's, so that's <clears throat> yeah, we, we, we know that something's out there that has Paul very paranoid about what could possibly happen if he and his family go outside of their house for too long. Right. So uh, yeah, there's yeah, this kind yeah. of global pandemic. We're not clued into what any of it actually is, but I, I wonder if that's maybe like what gives the film kind of a weird universality to it because not knowing what exactly has gone wrong with the world. It, it kind of allows us to plug into whatever social fears we'd like to prioritize, you know, so it could conceivably be some kind of nature allegory. It could be the result of a terrorist attack. Um, in, in any case, like what I like about this setup is that the film tosses those details aside so that we're not hung up on certain rules about the world we're living in. Okay. It's like zombie movies, for instance, always have to establish some guidelines, right? Like, do you have to shoot them in the head or... How fast are they? Or is there a cure? And so the movie kind of permits us to just ignore those details and just focus instead on what's uh, evidently a much smaller, more intimate drama. Yeah, it it avoids any kind of giant exposition dump to you know let you know all these rules as you just explained in, in favor of doing something much more personal. I should note <clears throat> the film um, by Trey Edward Schultz. Um, the I'm I'm a, I've learned this through interviews and what have you. He made this film following the death of his own father, um, and I do mm. think that that very much informs the film as a whole. Uh, I mean, just look at the opening scene, but even in terms of what the film is really going at, I mean, one one aspect is obviously paranoia, because a lot of the film is about Paul dealing with the, the trust issues that he forms with between uh, the other family that gets involved in the story, but the other big aspect um, comes from who is really the kind of the, the audience viewpoint for this film, the son, Travis, but even the, the rest of the cast are all going through this is grieving. Um, the, at least from my perspective, I think Paul, um, his wife, Sarah and Travis, they're all going through the grieving process throughout this movie. Uh, as the movie literally opens with them, you know, killing the, the, the patriarch of the, you know, of the entire family here. Um, and I think from, from that point forward and you, and with Travis specifically, um, who we do, I mean, as much as Joel Edgerton's, you know, a star and a character you rec you kind of, an actor you recognize more overtly and does a lot of action that drives the plot, Travis is the one you're really kind of, his frame of mind you're following through much of the movie, and you get clued into both his perspective on, you know, everybody else around when everyone's awake and active, but also you get a lot, you see a lot of his nightmares uh, coming to life, which is really the only manifestation of horror that kind of comes in this movie because uh, you get he constantly has these kind of visions of his grandpa who's sick and dying and like bleeding out of his mouth and stuff now there's not it's not too many of those there's there's a number of those sequences but uh it 
I I found that to be interesting as I going into this movie I knew there was some kind of something was going on as far as the this something was going on as far as the state of the world but as far as how that was going to be explored I found it it became more and more apparent to me that it's not only just about the the paranoia aspect and the, the trust and what have you but it's also about these these characters that are dealing with the fact that they've they've had to kill one of their own and are still working that out in the midst of other things going on that are kind of building everything to a, to a boil. Yeah. I mean, I know terms like atmospheric and things like that are kind of cliche, but that's essentially what this is doing through and through. It's all about the characters living in these kind of uncertain, very menacing spaces, whether it's out in the woods, which contains its own set of dangers or inside the house, which is supposed to be a place of warmth and safety, but cannot be under the circumstances, right? And I think it's really pivotal that, I mean, you point out that the film is kind of structured episodically around these nightmares that the kid has. Mm -hmm. um, because when you ask, like, it comes at night, well, what? what what's the it? The only real answer there is is it's his nightmares, right? I mean, yeah, I if, you're, like, if you're one to really kind of assign an it to something, yeah, I would say yes. It's the that, kind of. That, the... I feel like that's perfectly fine as, as our uh, nominal it because it further gives credence to the fact that the son is pretty key here and his perspective is what gives weight to all of the film's secrets and meanings um, and thematic, uh, thematic concerns, I think. Yeah. I mean, his perspective is really privileged in that way. I'd, yeah, I'd say that's even, fair. Though, yeah, even though the kind of dramatic propulsion of the film the conflict is uh, about the paranoia between the two kind of alpha males um joel edgerton and the other guy um paul and will mm -hmm. so he he's the son is there to what's the son's name do you travis. have it travis. travis travis is there to kind of bear witness uh but at the same time you know we're seeing it through his eyes and i think that's that's really critical right especially toward the end when we're a little unclear what's real and what's not are we allowed to talk about this? Yeah, we'll get, yes. Yeah. We're going okay. full spoilers, Can I ask you a question fine. before we get there? Yeah, sure. So, do they uh, ever show you guys anything beyond the woods and beyond the, the house and their their cabin? Um, so, no other world is established, right? That's just, that's so, the, the well, setting of the movie? To, they have to venture out a little bit to fetch the other guy's wife and child, and so there's a brief interlude where they drive down the road a little bit, but we don't ever exit the woods, like uh -huh. capital W Woods. Um, right. There's a pretty fantastic tracking shot, by the way, just to yeah. just to check that out uh, while they're driving down the road, um, which is just technically impressive. But otherwise, you know, they they go on, and then we skip to a few days later when they arrive back, and so it's yeah. pretty centered around this this main cabin that they're living in, and eventually start sharing with these these yeah, it, strangers. It plays very much by standard cabin in the woods movies type rules. Uh, yeah. Where you really are focused entirely on this main location with some minor, very uh, minor kind of venturing, um, but it it really adds to the tension in this film, and that's right. what I I want to start emphasizing as well. As much as we we'll get more into kind of where the story goes and the characters and have you, but I think the film what it really accomplishes is building this great sense of dread because of the kind of location use. You're you're mainly in the house or very close to it, and I mean there's. There are a couple scenes outside the house, one in particular where the, the Paul and his family, they have a dog. The dog runs off, and Travis chases after the dog, and you get this moment where Travis is just staring 
basically at the camera where you're not seeing what he's seeing, but you're just seeing, but the reverse shot is him staring into the woods and, mm-hmm. you know, a normal movie might have a monster pop out or something like that, but this movie really doesn't do that. It, it Instead, it makes you afraid of what you possibly might see, even though you're not giving anything to actually look at. And the the way it utilizes that amount of tension, I think, is fantastic. And then you kind of double back to the house. And, Mike, you talked about how the house should be this kind of place of warmth and, and you know, kind of safety, um, but it's actually not. And that's exactly right. But what helps... And, you know, further emphasizing that fact is that it's bathed in darkness and shadows so much. So much of this film is actually set at night or in the dark because the house is all boarded up. So it's the the, the work with the cinematographer, Drew Daniels. I have that looked up. I don't have that memorized. Um, it's, um, <laughs> it's really well done to kind of make this house just this, this great place of of mystery and unknown where everywhere where like Travis in particular has a lantern constantly because they don't have lights, you know, they don't have electricity. So they're, he's like constantly walking down hallways at night and what have you. He has insomnia for the most part of the movie when he's not, you know, having nightmares. And so he's kind of walking down hallways and you just see the, the all these hall, these rooms and the halls are all steeped in darkness and the light, the way the light shines and you kind of reveal more and more of a room and whatnot. It just makes you really worried about what's happening. Like, and like you're saying, yeah, at, atmosphere is so thick in this film where you're just, yeah. you're just very concerned really great cinematography and there's a particular use of just the, the red door that's mm-hmm. just very menacing and and kind of pops on the screen so there's a i guess like a a double entrance there's a door that's painted red that beyond which there are these these horrors right like don't go don't go out there alone don't go out there at night um a lot of that might be symbolic but um, the the way in which that gets utilized within the color palette of the of the film is pretty great, and also just it's like you say it's not just that the house is shrouded in darkness, and you have these ni- nice visuals of the kind of these lone lanterns creeping through the hallways, but there's a lot of just the cameras sort of creeping through the hallways. It reminded me a lot of um of the house in David Lynch's Lost Highway. Okay. I have no yeah. for. I have no basis for um, uh, linking the two to suggest that the director might have uh, looked at that film, but this just these slow, creepy uh, dolly shots through the hallways, and and you never know what's behind the corner or if something's going to leap out. You presume not. There's no narrative reason for something to leap out, but it just oozes danger, right, and threat. Um, that being said, I don't. I want to know if Aaron agrees. I was a little confused about the spatial organization of the interior of the house. Like beyond the fact that there is this set of double doors that insulate the house from danger or so they think it wasn't really clear to me where people were in relation to each other, which I I, I just found a little off putting. It didn't kind of detract from my appreciation of what was going on and how the two families kind of come into conflict at the end. But in terms of, wait, are they just down the hall or, or is it like a spectacularly long hallway? And then there seems to be another hallway. I just, I, I wasn't quite sure how far away physically they were from each other at any given time, which made it unclear to me just what, how much threat was actually, you know, present at, at any given moment. Well, I will say this because I, I find that to be a very interesting point because I, I thought about this as well. Uh, I would say, yeah, if I could... If I were to have to draw out like a blueprint, which I have no experience of doing, it would be terrible at. But if given the idea that if if I did have these skills, I think I could reasonably tell you where these rooms are and where people were staying. Now that said, 
I don't think I'd want to either. And this is something Abe and I talk about on the show when we talk about kind of spatial, horrible, yeah, spatial, we talk about uh, geography. Guys, amateur architects, is that? Yeah, it's our, it's 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 architect now with Aaron it, and Abe. It is it's, one of our favorite like... topics to talk about when we're talking about like these horror slash thriller type movies because we we always bring up The Conjuring and what James Wan does with those movies where you basically know where every room is and that's what adds a layer another layer of tension to yeah, the movie. Yeah, something something we like yeah, specifically with James Wan, he has a good way of kind of presenting a film's geography by having the camera float around rooms and establish things pretty well. And right. what I like about this movie is that it's the inverse because what you're pointing out to me Mike is something that I kind of admired where I think the film I think there's an easy way to spell out where these people are but it's purposely not doing it. And I think that's very it's very purposeful why it's not doing that. I think it, it. I think it wants you to make you feel like you're in this kind of labyrinthine um, place of mystery, and 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 you should be kind of fearful of not quite knowing where everybody is at a given time. I think it wants you to kind of. I, I think it, it it's intentionally trying to kind of help build that sense of dread by not only having a, a house that's kind of you know shrouded in darkness and what have you. Uh, despite the, you know, given the irony that it's supposed to be this place of safety, and yet you have no idea what's around the corner, but you're also supposed to just, you're, you're really, you're literally not supposed to know what's around any, any given corner because of how, uh, how otherworldly it can seem at times, given the way yeah. certain angles are used or how characters are traversing said levels. I mean, Travis is walking all over this house, but he, it, it seems like not necessarily every time he walks around a new corner, it feels different. But I mean, there's certainly a sense that. He's encountering certain rooms or what have you, and it seems like it could be it could go either way sometimes. So this is the point yeah, where he. I'll yeah. agree with that, and I think just to add on to that, I think it gives further, it reinforces further the importance of Travis as our mm-hmm. our avatar, I guess, because he's the only one who seems to kind of float through this space with relative ease. He's not kind of waking everybody up as he moves through. He he kind of navigates the spaces that other other characters don't like there's a crawl space where you can kind of eavesdrop on people mm-hmm. and so he's really the one who just kind of is kind of unrestricted in his in his movement through the space which i think is important given that we don't always know whether he's actually doing this or if he's having a nightmare in bed yes, right that's the other thing travis is basically an unreliable narrator he's not narrating the film literally but i mean there's certainly a perspective we're supposed to have with him and the film I think as it gets you know further and further along, you become less and less aware of whether or not he's having a you know a dream sequence or if it's actual reality, if he's actually going through the house or not. And the film actually has some clever ways of presenting whether or not you're in a nightmare. It's not always completely sure towards the end as far as what you're supposed to believe, but there's actually an aspect change ratio, and the use of score mm. is um, different when he's having a nightmare. And that's something I I thought I was kind of like being. It's like okay, this is another night. It's it's off putting. It's just like breaking the 180 degree rule line. That's a film school thing. But um, it yeah, it, the aspect ratio changes. I actually thought my theater had gotten the masking wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I couldn't figure out. Wait a minute now. Um, I yeah. So you're right. So the nightmare sequences. There's a subtle change in the aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. I suspect there's a logic to it um, that's pretty consistent. If we were to take a look at, a, at the film a second time, I don't know if that really contributes much. Like we have other cues, like you say, the sound design mm-hmm. that gives us a sense that he's dreaming, and like insofar as there's a really critical blurring of the lines between what's real and what's potentially just a dream toward the end of the film, 
this is where the movie starts to get really fuzzy, uh, shall we say, specifically yeah. around the issue of who lets the dog back into the house. We can get into this. Yeah. But I certainly hope I'm just I, I hope it's not as easy as going back through and sorting this catalog of aspect ratios shot for shot and piece it together like a puzzle for which like which shot is there for a dream and which is real as if the director provided us with all the tools we need to quote unquote solve his movie. Well, I think I, the, I think I trust I, it's not yeah. the case. And I assume you're like me and you have no desire to go back and do that shot for shot. But no, I, I certainly don't have a does the idea to, you know, want to yeah, need to nitpick it to hell to make sure I like know exactly when's a dream. But I will say that, you know, er, the early go, the, the first half, if, if not more of the movie, it's pretty obvious when he's having a nightmare and when he's not having a nightmare, they make that pretty overt. Um, but yeah, as the film kind of gets into the, it's, it's third act, so to speak. It does. It's purposely trying to mess with you as far as just how much of it could be true or could be different, and then by then it leads to a you know an ending that you certainly have no real. You don't necessarily have a real idea. Now, I, I there's the, a suggestion that his nightmares and his reality are converging. Yes, in a way. Or, or yeah. so the answer. The answer to like what really happens, quote unquote, which is left really ambiguous. Um, lies somewhere between what we initially understand to be his nightmares and what we simultaneously understand to be really happening. Is that vague enough for you, Abe? Um, but <laughs> it, it, it blurs that line on purpose, right? And this is where I think maybe people got a little upset with the movie because it's mm-hmm. hell-bent on not giving you easy answers. Yeah, which is why you, know, you referencing Lynch makes perfect sense because there's a lot of, I mean... I'm not the biggest David Lynch fan. I've said that before, but I, I do. I certainly recognize the qualities that that come out in his films, and this film certainly, among other things, has a Lynchian aspect to it. Especially as you get to the end of it. Like I think the g- going through most of the film, it's a little too obvious to be compared to kind of Lynch as far as what exactly is happening. But then again, you can look at it like Blue Velvet, which is pretty straightforward. Um, but certainly towards the end, it does have this this ambiguity that can be frustrating, but also informs the, what the, where the character's mind space is. That's very effective. If you're into what the movie's doing. Well, it's, I I keep coming back to this idea that we see through, see the the narrative unfold through Travis, but the fact that he's a teenager, right. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned this, but like the, the fact that he kind of experiences in that opening scene, the death of a, of a grandparent, um, we see his first sexual awakening kind of play out in this kind of flirty, flirty uh, uh, relationship that he imagines wanting to have with the other woman. Um, yeah, with the, with the wife of with the wife of Will, who eventually is at the house as well. So you, you do see him kind of go through these kind of um, growing into adult responsibilities. Right. And so is that, is that fair to say, like the fact that he's oh, for sure, he's a he's he's a he's a teenager who's literally by himself alone in the woods with his parents. And he has no, you know, outlets cause he can't go outside. He's with, he's inside all that. It's not safe to go out anywhere else. He's so, uh, this is my, this is my question, which is it, it wasn't clear to me how long they've been holed up. Um, I think we assume it's maybe been a few months, but is it possible it's been years? They do think... seem to have a lot of like improvised um, makeshift household devices like a shower and a water purifier. I, um, I I wouldn't say years mainly because of the child, because the the, the kid Andrew, who's oh you know, right, right. 
he does does you know, I mean he, I if anything I'd say it's been at most a month in my eyes. That's kind of how yeah, I looked at it. Because know. the reason I asked, the reason uh, I'm curious about this sense of time is because it directly impacts how new and therefore how shocking and traumatic these encounters are to Travis. So the fact that Grandpa's death maybe symbolizes his first experience of losing a loved one and the fact that the director's uh, the director recently lost his father i'm assuming to a disease of some kind that would make sense if this mm-hmm. is yeah. at all autobiographical yeah. as opposed to an accident or something um so the fact that grandpa's death has that impact on him and then you have these kind of sort of flirty encounters with the other woman as maybe his first sexual fantasy like interpreting the film in that way to me becomes more palatable if we understand that his like formative memories certainly as an adolescent, if not as a young child, are from being in these woods primarily, right? Or at least if he remembers a pre-apocalyptic world, he would have been too young to associate it with the sort of child-becomes-a-man moments that the story emphasizes, which is precisely what would separate him from his parents, right? Because they would have learned those lessons uh, and grown up processing them in a world that hadn't already been wiped away and like warped by all that isolation and and constant like vigilance does that make sense it does but i I think it's because travis is i I think it's because this quote-unquote apocalypse is fairly new to all of them that he does have a level of experience along with paul and sarah and you know the rest of the the cast they all have a you know they can all recognize what life was like before this so that it's not there's not a there's not a to me there's not a thought of like travis having grown up only in these woods to not know anything else i think he's familiar enough with the world is more that it's been taken away from him at this point. So he's dealing yeah. with kind of that aspect. And especially because Paul is Joel Edgerton's character. He's too on edge already to like survive years of this. I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty ready to go at a moment's go. I, I, that's why I think just a, merely a month, if not two have passed before he thinks that the you know, tensions really start to get, get to a, you know, grind to a halt and, you know, bad things happen from there. I, I, I guess maybe, maybe I'm just doing that classic thing where I'm imagining the movie that I wanted to see, which is yeah. that, like he, he's never been outside the woods, which is why. He's well, I mean, it, the movie sounds ambiguous enough for people to interpret it as they see fit. Right. So that's why I think that's actually a really interesting take. Just a sexual weight or not even a sexual awakening, but just like just this this boy coming into adulthood or quote unquote manhood. And how he's viewing the world as it changes now. And I like that the timeline doesn't actually definitively tell you how long anything outside of their cabin or outside of their woods area has been going on or how long they've been there. I actually have a question for you guys. Um, as the movie progresses, do you find that you pick up with one character more than another? Not so much Travis, but, well, maybe Joel Edgerton's character is crazy or maybe he's just really controlling and maybe Will is somebody that I, I think is a more uh established or not established but more level-headed character like do you start picking sides well uh, here's I, yeah 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 so this is where i think the movie's maybe a little fuzzier than it needs to be um so so they form this alliance there's this other family father's father mother and small child like really small child and they uh what like two years old maybe um yeah, like three or four. Okay, well, tiny, right? He's tiny. Um, yeah, he's a kid. Yes, he's he's a kid. So they bring and and Travis is like probably fifteen, sixteen. Anyway, they 
allow them into their house, but there's this unspoken, sometimes uh, subtle, sometimes not tension between them. Can we really trust these people? And so you see this very uneasy alliance form. They don't trust each other, but they're working together. And of course, people like us who are, say, genre literate, we're of course thinking, you know, well, wouldn't it be interesting if it turns out these outsiders are lying and they're actually dangerous? But then you think, well, wouldn't it be even more interesting if they aren't? And it's mm. Joel Edgerton who's instigating like the eventual self-destruction, right? To to get to um to get to Abe's point. So it <clears throat> there's this great quote I once heard. I can't remember who said it. It might have been like on a DVD audio commentary or something. Um I'm sorry if this is wrong a little bit. I want to say it's like David Fincher, maybe. It's about screenwriting. And it's that in a in a really great scene, nobody is wrong. Mm. Right? You could conceivably see the argument from all sides of the conflict. And I think this film gets frustratingly close to getting to that place in which we could see why the other couple is behaving in the way that they are. And it's it's perfectly understandable. And if you were in their shoes, you might do the same thing. Um, and I think the film wants us to at least contemplate the possibility that it's Joel Edgerton and so Paul and his family that are being the bad guys here or that no one is bad. And it's the, it's paranoia. That's the real killer. Right. Uh, but the film, I think, ultimately keeps us a little bit at arm's length and maybe undercuts that message by making the other couple a little too mysterious. Um, and I'm talking about mainly like things like staging and blocking. A big example of this is that at the very end there's the possibility that the baby is sick but we don't actually get a good look at it because the mother is always shielding it do you know what i'm talking about aaron yeah it, but i think so, i mean it has it's purposely ambiguous at the same yeah, time yeah. So, there's, so there's what I'm saying, though yeah. what i'm saying though is that there remains this possibility that the boy has erupted in, in disease and we're just not privy to that but to me that's both the strength and weakness in the film because it keeps us guessing and it doesn't provide any easy answers, but it also has the effect of like further enlisting us into the perspective of the main family pretty consistently. Yes, even yeah. While asking us, even while asking us to consider the possibility that they're the ones who've made a big mistake here. So in order to like remain ambiguous about one thing, the film isn't quite as like equal opportunity as I would have liked to have seen mm -hmm. uh, where the ambiguities are, particularly since I felt the film edging toward those themes um edging edging towards <laughs> toward those themes already and so it, it's ambiguous in one sense at the expense of like other another sense yeah i mean the movie because it rarely leaves it, it, since it you know there's only the one scene where it actually leaves the house but it also rarely leaves travis out of the equation so you get the one mm -hmm. you get the one scene where paul and will have to go travel to find will's the rest of his family and everything which you don't actually see their house or anything but you just see them drive down the road and encounter some other threat that they have to take care of but aside from that as i've said the movie is largely from travis's perspective and i think the film especially towards that end where you're kind of starting to blur travis's reality with his nightmares there's a purposeful level of ambiguity, but the movie's not trying to betray itself either by getting you to focus entirely on what Will and Sarah and the boy Andrew are going through. You're trying to focus on, you know, family A as opposed to family B. Um, but to, I guess, to speak to what your original question was, Abe, as far as uh, what is the movie trying to give us an idea of if Paul's just crazy or if Will and the others are just untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, the movie does, you know, it's, obviously favoring family a um but okay but i think the and i never 
I never wouldn't not wouldn't believe Paul. I would never not believe Joel Edgerton um, as far as what he's going through. And I and while I do think there is a level of tension in his mind and it's getting to a breaking point, I never I never think that he's going crazy. I think I never think that's like a, a thing that's going. I think he gets intense about protecting his family at any cost. But I never think the movie's deliberately misleading us as far as what he's seeing um, with with uh, Will and. Um, and uh, and uh, his wife Kim and Andrew, that not, I mean Andrew's just he's he's a kid he's along for the ride but I what, <laughs> but the movie I think is very purposely it's playing coy with us on the nature of them um, and the movie it, it even doubles back on it because Will at, at the start he gives a certain story um, involving what how he and his his family are out there and what's going on but there is a there's a, a key scene with Will and Paul where they're yeah, that's and, a great scene. Yes, there were where Paul's essentially interrogating Will just through the kind of most laid back means possible, where they, where they share a drink together, and they, you know, they gets Will to open up about things, and he contradicts himself. Well, um, he, he gives a tiny discrepancy in his story that mm-hmm. could very well be nothing, mm-hmm. but could be everything, right? Could also so, be everything, exactly. Yeah, uh, and so nice. it, so it, 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 the movie, yes, the movie always leaves you wondering, well what did happen now i think there's perhaps a logical way to explain it that doesn't necessarily make the movie better um but i mean we did encounter a couple people at one point that paul and will had to take care of that presented a possible threat there's a logical way of explaining okay so perhaps they were part of some other group and they're the reason that things happened the way they did as far as certain people seeing certain things and certain doors being open when they shouldn't. That's one way to think of it. There could be a sleepwalking thing going on involving Travis. There could be a sleepwalking thing involved on going with Andrew. Uh, there's, there's various literal ways to explain certain questions that are go unanswered here, but for the movie's purposes, it really is. It's more about pitting Paul and will and their kind of their mind frame against each other at a point because you're, you're wondering what well, they're, they both have this whole issue of well the world is presumably ended um we only want to protect our families there's some kind of disease out there but i also don't know if i can trust my you know my benefactor or my neighbor and it that's really where the movie's more interested in i think rather than it, uh, obviously there's travis as a kind of a wild card in the scenario too but as far as paul and will as leaders of their respective families I think it's less them going mad and more them doing going to the kind of full intensity of what it means to want to protect each other. And if that means kind of going against the other family or not. Yeah. You're, you're outlining a number of kind of key questions and key ambiguities, like these mm-hmm. sort of unresolved issues uh, mm-hmm. that pop up, uh, especially toward the end. I mean, one that you leave out is the movie does suggest that there may be something out there in the woods. Yes something supernatural or something, you know, uh, because th- there is a, a lingering question of, like, what exactly happens to the dog. The The film is mostly not too predictable, except that the dog is going to die at some point. Yeah. Uh, what a bummer. But the way in which it does leaves a lot of open-ended things about, like, there there could be some kind of demonic, I don't know, or, or an entity out in the woods. They give no... Uh, credence to that eventually but it is another thing that the film sprinkles in there and so i i like this film a lot but i'm very open to acknowledging criticisms that i think people must have that the movie is maybe a little too self-conscious about wanting to keep things vague and undefined for audiences Um, yeah i mean maybe what i'm saying is that it, it does 
I think, confuse or obscure the difference between leaving things open-ended and ambiguous, and sometimes just being a little too cryptic. I mean, I think people who like films that are a bit more challenging and come with the expectation that, you know, an indie film from uh, A24 is going to be more willing and all the more interesting for it for leaving an audience guessing. But at the same time, um, I can see the film being constructed in a way that wants us to debate and ponder and engage in its symbolism. Um, like we have to play its game and develop our own fan theories about, you know, like who actually got sick at the end and, and things like that. But, and you know, the, the redness of the door and there's, there's a close up of like a mural with depicting a plague or a genocide at some point. I mean, the film really wants us to read into its symbolism, I think in ways that make me think it's, not actually doing anything all that profound, even though okay. as a work of, yeah, as a filmmaking exercise, as a work of craft, um, it's it's really nicely done and very effective. I should note so, that I, I I completely agree with you, Mike. I do, um, and it's part of my criticism that the film, for all the dread and atmosphere that it builds up, and how effective that is, and how on edge that I am, what just going down certain rooms and not knowing what to think, or seeing that scene like I described with the dog running into the woods and. Travis just looking into the woods and not mm-hmm. into the woods and not um <laughs> not not allowing us to see if he's actually seeing something. I think the movie could use an actual release, not necessarily a like a giant right. payoff at the end. That's like it's him, there he is, it's it's that's it that comes at night, but just something you know. It's just like a giant clown. I mean, I what I yeah right. <laughs> uh, uh, but 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 I I think it more. This, I guess, what I'm saying. This is a movie that I don't think it's. I think the movie feels it's above, above beyond, uh, jump scares, and I don't think that's true. I don't think it's. I don't think it would. I don't think it'd be beneath the movie to have some more jump scares in here to kind of help assuage the um, the amount of you know horror and dread that's going on. I think there's a way to kind of give you give the audience a release every now and then that would benefit the film overall. Um, yeah. It certainly sounds like the first maybe like 35 minutes of 10 Cloverfield Lane of where you're not really sure if uh, Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winsett is the right one or if she's like just being held captive by some crazy John Goodman uh, before she gets up to the second door and sees that person outside. Um, but it certainly feels that way where I, I see what you guys are saying, too, where maybe it's a little bit too caught up within itself to really try and give you guys any sort of explanation and. Uh, it sounds like it's not giving you any explanation at all, but it's not really giving you any clues to whether it wants to give you an explanation. So well, I mean, it's, it's not a it's not a movie of, with it's not a movie with definitive answers. Sure, on sure, purpose. yeah. Now, with and, that's and, I, I, I've I, I would I, just say I've because I've, I've read a number of interviews with um, with um, with Schultz at this point where he really explains it's like you know the movie may be construed as being one that's very twisty and full of full of loose ends and what have you, but he's he made this very clear. He's pro- he's probably doing a le- he's doing a lot less than you may be thinking he's doing as far as trying to trick you. Mm. Like they're they're it's simpler than it sounds essentially is his answer. I mean, which is there's still yeah. obviously amb- ambiguity and loose ends and whatnot, but I mean it's I, I, it's not overly complicated in the way some of us might yeah, be thinking. We, it is. Yeah, we may be overcomplicating it in our description too. But when a when you say like he's not leaving clues, I mean he is right with this uh, aspect ratio thing, and so I mm-hmm. feel like the filmmaker. Uh, sees himself as kind of leaving these breadcrumbs that he wants us to follow. So if we were to kind of get the truth serum in him and ask him uh, what the film is about, ultimately, his answer would be, you know, what do you think, guys? You know, it's just just like it makes the aspect ratio thing feel like a gimmick 
as opposed if he, to if he called on me in a press conference and I and he asked that question to me, I'd be like, this is the Bagul origin, isn't it? Yeah, because <laughs> the aspect ratio changes. Uh, I have a question for you guys. Two technical questions. Um, Mike, you mentioned this, uh, and it was also a question I had. But what was the use of sound in this movie? Um, Mike, you mentioned sound design, but what was the use of sound overall? And Aaron, you also mentioned score. Like, is it a score in which you? It, it's like it's a build tension score, or is it just more of? Oh well, that's uh, it's interesting that they chose to use score right now. This particular scene. To, to go to, to go to the score question real quick, uh, the score really comes into play when there are nightmares. There's a lot less score okay. when they're not nightmares being present, but there are some beats where it's it's certainly atmospheric. It helps that that's the kind of score it is. It's not necessarily there's there's some build up type mm-hmm. scoring going on, but there's also it says like when Paul and Will go out on like and get into Paul's truck and they drive for a bit. It's this kind of not like fun, but it's certainly kind of a uh, yeah, a, a more m- momentum is kind of being built. You're like, oh yeah, all right, I'm kind of I'm almost toe tapping at this point to the the music that's going on here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the sound design in the house, right? These nightmare sequences where Travis isn't walking around in the dark. Uh-huh. It's kind of a low, dreadful hum. Like okay. the movie doesn't have, um, well, like violin strings and jump scares, which is yeah, it's yeah. good. But it's another reason why it just linked in my head to um, the the house in at least the first act of Lost Highway, where it's just this kind of low, menacing just sound that's just there to provide atmosphere. Um, that, in addition to that, I mean, the sound design is very good throughout. You have a lot of dialogue that is muffled because they're wearing gas masks. Uh-huh. Adds this layer of uh, of kind of dread and. Uh, something kind of uncanny and strange about people talking to each other through gas masks. Yeah. The opening scene has really good stuff with that. Um, so I'm, I'm impressed by the design of the thing Yeah. Uh, in, in a holistic way, yeah. But I'm also curious about when you guys are talking about Travis going through these these uh, perhaps sleepwalking tours throughout his house at night, do they have the creepy things in the shadows making noises? Not like figures, but just... The creaking of wood or something like that, where it's no, a little it's, unsettling. It, it, no, it's a, it's more emphasizing the negative space. It's more emphasizing okay. the fact that there's so much unknown going on, including a lack of cut. There's a, there is a key sequence where Travis discovers the dog, um, but besides that, there's not really an indication that there's like something else in this house with him, unless it's something sure. that's required of the scene. Like, I, okay, yeah, yeah, and there's good use of silence throughout too. I'd oh, for say. sure, yeah, yeah. So can I ask, so Abe? Have you seen Krisha? I can't remember if you mentioned. I haven't. No, I just looked it up when you guys were when we started talking, and um, it sounds horrific. Like, it's like, not a, in a, it's bad like way. a stressful family reunion movie. Yeah, that, right. And it, it's like this person comes back for Thanksgiving dinner, and I was like, this uh, this sounds like it could go really poorly. Well, it just it makes me. The more we've been talking, the more I'm trying to like conjure up memories of Krisha because it's also i mean it feels like very very part of a continuum with this director so Mm -hmm. i mean the ending to this film is very nihilistic Mm. and spoilers for krisha that movie is also about the failures of reconciliation and the the ending isn't and that film isn't violent or anything but it also suggests that like human frailty is what drives us apart instead of bringing us together um, one film does this with a literal family, and uh, this one it's more metaphorical. But they both kind of collapse and fragment at the end, right? Um, yeah. So, um, remind me, 
Aaron. So Krisha, <coughs> excuse me, Krisha is about, she's like a recovering alcoholic yes. who like insinuates herself over for Thanksgiving dinner, even though she clearly has all these unresolved issues and it's this family melodrama, right? Yes. I mean, this film is very much like that. It it comes at night because it's also about this kind of unwelcome presence that's taken in by the family and sort of like disrupts the equilibrium of that family and puts everyone at unease and produces this unspoken tension. I hope I'm remembering Krisha correctly. No, yeah, you're, um, you're dead on. Like it, it, there are a lot of, despite the, you know, genre switch of sorts, the kind of the emotional through line here, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. It's also that I'm sure that movie was shot and it must've been on like a micro budget, but it's also primarily centered around a house. Yes. Right. Um, I, I'm not, I don't remember it well enough to say it's photographed or staged in a similar manner, but it's also about people kind of peering around corners and distrusting each other. And so I think there's real clear traces there, right? That they feel, the more I think about it, they feel much like companion films to me. Mm. And I should, I should note, by the way, my favorite kind of thing to note, Krisha is available on Amazon prime um, <laughs> on streaming and it's like 83 minutes. It does not take much time to watch. So it's like, it's, it's... Well, you know, this, this cuts to this question of whether it comes at night can be classified as a horror movie, right? Because the fact that it has all these thematic, uh, uh, continuities with Krisha makes me think that It Comes at Night is meant to be read as yet another kind of domestic family drama to which the apocalypse going on outside is entirely secondary, right? It's a much more intimate story. Yeah, than I mean, the apocalypse yeah. genre would kind of in, in, immediately conjure in people's minds. Well, it's, it speaks to the to what I think is the fluidity of the horror genre where some people want to write off horror as it has supernatural stuff or it's not horror. And I think that's wildly not true. And I think we've discussed that Abe and I, you and I, as well as uh, friends of the show, Jason Coleman, Brandon Peters, Jimmy O, we've discussed that many times in our October episodes where we, yeah. do the, you know, we do five bonus episodes in October that cover various aspects of horror to various varying degrees. And, well, we've, you know, one of the conclusions I could take away from doing just those episodes, let alone my own knowledge of horror in general, because I'm a big horror fan, is that horror comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And this movie certainly, you know, works as a kind of the the epitome of a dysfunctional family drama. Um, the way it's constructed, the effort that goes into delivering on a certain emotional pull. Um, the way characters are acting, the nature of the film, the fact that it does take place in some kind of uh, reality where the the world has you know gone to hell, that makes it horror in my eyes. Like yeah, and the, fact, <laughs> the fact that it's also an isolated location, right? Yes, I mean, this, I mean this, it's a cabin. Like I said, it's a cabin in the woods story. I well, mean, that's <laughs> well, we're we're debating what is this more lean toward horror or is it a family drama? I mean, this film has a lot more in common with Cabin in the Woods than it does with Kramer versus Kramer, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just. Um, it, it has all those elements to it. I think it's just the film is happy to kind of ride that genre or use that genre as a template to just kind of discard what it feels is an important so that it can get into a much more intimate uh, Krisha 2.0 type drama about you know, fam families, what, what drives a family apart. For sure, and it's not all—it's not at all unfamiliar for you know genres to mash up against each other, and you know we can talk about horror comedies all day. This is a horror drama. I mean, that's really the way to look at it. I mean, it—it it has this psychological aspect as far as get, getting in—excuse me—getting inside a character's mind, but it also just—I mean, looking at just how the camera moves through this house, 
that's a horror movie. There's no other way around that. <laughs> I mean, you can look at like Jaws as an adventure movie because there's a bunch of guys going on a boat eventually to go after a shark. But a shark also, you know, travels through the water. It's incredibly scary and eats a small boy. I mean, that's a horror movie. Like, that's, there's no other way around that. So it, it's neat to see genres rub up against each other. And I certainly don't deny that there's, you know, a familial drama here. But it is ostensibly a horror right. film. That's why it's being sold that way. A24 is not, you know, they're not selling up a, like, a see this yeah. family and the crazy things they get into. They're selling a horror movie. It's also, it also has, you know, real horror images to it, right? Real mm-hmm. body horror. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, the grandpa appears in nightmares yeah. with blood in his mouth and scars and yeah, uh, makes, sores like, all over his face. It <laughs> makes you erupt into boils and things like that. And there is some hard violence in it as well. So, yeah, I mean... I'm not sure this ought to be controversial. Nope, shouldn't be. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it uh, it's a neat thing to discuss as far as the kind of defining the genre because movies don't really need to be defined by genre to begin with. So it's neat to see so these actually, labels. Actually, though, can I can I shout out? I just want to point out how impressed I'm becoming over the years with Joel Edgerton's choice of. Oh project. my god, he's Joel Edgerton is fantastic. I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's already making good choices as an actor. Like so, last if people saw Loving last year. Um, yeah. I think one of my favorite things that he's ever ever done is Warrior, the MMA yes. movie. Yes, Abe, really... Abe and I are fans of Warrior. That's yeah. for sure. But but he's also developing this really impressive resume, working behind the scenes as a writer and producer of pretty strong genre films. So he directed the is it the Gift, right? Which the is Gift, pretty well yes. Seen. Which is yeah, I really like the Gift. I really like too. I also really liked a couple of films he did in Australia. One's called The Rover, which is another post-apocalyptic yes. thing with Guy Pearce. Another good one. Uh, there's a noir film called The Square. Yeah, yeah, The Square. Uh, with, with yeah, they're not they're not mind blowing, but they're really tightly made, solid B plus movies. So I'm definitely a fan of this film, um, in so far that it kind of cements that reputation for Joel Edgerton for me. Yeah, Joel Edgerton is along with uh, Ben Mendelsohn, who's in Animal Kingdom, uh, which is also stars Edgerton and, and yeah. it's, that that's it's the among those Australian films you were just mentioning uh, he's friends of David Michaud David Michaud who directed the rover um they're actors where I the intensity and the kind of confidence they bring to all their roles I very much admire and yeah Joel Edgerton in particular I, I I look forward to whenever he decides getting his laugh on and making some kind of comedy because I don't deny that he'll probably be really good at it. But for, if he's going to keep doing these dramas and really these understated roles, he's fantastic every single time. And this yeah. is another example of that. Even if with him being kind of the most intense character in this movie, he's still underplaying it in a way where it's like I completely believe everything this man does. And that <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's it's a I mean, he directed The Gift, but it is it is a gift to be able to make that so convincing. I guess Black Mass is probably the closest he's got to doing comedy, just because, because of how ludicrous his character is and it's the things that are going on. But um, Or as Pharaoh in Exodus. That's not very good. Um, his resemblance to um, Conan O'Brien is, is a little off-putting, though. Well, you, yeah, I, I thought about that before looking at him. Is like, there's a, you can kind of see like an Australian tougher version of Conan if you look at Joe Ledgerton. <laughs> Um, but no, I think this cast in general, I think is terrific. I think the whole group of people here all do great jobs. Uh, Christopher Abbott as Will, I think is very strong and kind of playing a, a character that's basically Paul, but from a different perspective, um, Carmen Ajogo is good as his wife, Riley Keough as Kim Will's mm-hmm. wife. I, I think she does a good job. Uh, but, uh, Kelvin uh, Harris Jr. as Travis. Uh, Travis, he's a real find. Yeah. Yes, for sure. He's, 
I, I mean, he's, uh, I see, I'm looking up now, he's 22 years old, he's playing a teenager in this movie, he's he's had a couple roles here and there, and uh, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, 12 Years a Slave? Some movies and stuff, but yeah, this this, this kid, I, he gives a really strong, I mean, he has, he's central to this movie, he gives a really strong performance. I think the dog phoned it in a little bit. Yeah, the dog could have did done more. <laughs> no. Bark, bark. Uh, but let's... was the animal handled with care? Uh, probably, because uh, that's you know you can't not do that these days. <laughs> but, uh... Well, I stayed to to make sure to read that disclaimer at the end, but the aspect ratio was so funky I couldn't. Uh, couldn't oh, the it. credits are also in that that <laughs> different aspect ratio. Yeah, let's uh, yeah. No, I don't know. Yes. What? Let's get into some brass tax questions, just because I'm curious of your perspective on this. There's a point in the movie we talk about this red door a lot. The red door and the red door is very. I mean, it's in the marketing campaign at this point, as far as like how kind of effective that is as a thing that stands out in this. You know, right. This, and it's also house. it's also the key sort of iconography of the house that we recognize. Yes. Um, so. So yeah. the door in this film, it, it has, there's only, a, there's, a, there's one key. It's the only way to get in and out of this house through that door. Um, there's a point, as I mentioned, where the dog runs away. Uh, it runs into the woods. It hears something. We don't know what that is. The, um, they all go, they, the dog's gone at that point. It's gone into the night. It's nowhere to be found. So the characters are all inside the house. Um, at a certain point, Travis, who's once again had a nightmare or whatnot, he's walking around. He discovers the boy, Andrew. Who is uh, in in his grand in in Travis's grandfather's room just sleeping? Um, we don't know how necessarily he got there. If he slept, walked into that room, or he just kind of fell asleep in the room, whatever. Um, it's a creepy image, by the way. <laughs> just talking about it's giving me the creeps actually. because <laughs> yeah, we recorded this Probably after mid- the, yeah, we recorded this after midnight. The rest in the dark. <laughs> yeah, it's it's dark in the other rooms and stuff. I'm just talking about this out loud. It's making me creeped out. Um, but the rest so of Tra- will save you. But Travis discovers the um, discovers Andrew. He takes him back to his parents' room. He hears a noise. He goes around. He finds that the door, the red door, is ajar. Um, and he also discovers the dog is bleeding and dying on the floor. Um, do you have an idea, Mike, of who opened the door? Because this becomes a point of contention for the rest of the characters in the film. Your description has me worried that I'm misremembering something. Isn't there, like, loud banging Yes, there is. Uh, yeah, right. well, because well, presumably someone, whatever happened to the dog, the dog was you know, injured well, in some this way. Is, yeah, but well, this is what I mean when I think the film is happy to suggest that there may be some kind of entity outside, because the impression that I got and I thought I was meant to get was that something brought the dog back mm-hmm. and just kind of left it there, something yeah. or someone. But um, so that's. That is completely unresolved. But there is this question of this door that shall not be opened. How did it get opened? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you've outlined are several possibilities. Uh, Travis opened it himself, um, whether in kind of a somnambulist state or uh, to, you know, rescue his dog or the little boy did it, which someone points out he's not tall enough to have unlocked it. And so the reason why it's really unclear is because we don't know whether he's dreaming or not, right? This is where the the kind of setup of any time Travis is going to out wandering around at night, it could very well be a nightmare, pays off in this way that is really ambiguous, right? We don't know if this was meant to be one nightmare just like the other ones or if he actually has opened the door. Yeah, it's all, it's all, it's, it's as unresolved as I'm making it sound. 
I would say it's a pretty, it'd be an unfair nightmare if all of that is a nightmare because that's a lot of plot basically to happen within a dream that we're not clear on. Um, well, but that's, I, that's where the film, I mean, I, I don't know if maybe the aspect ratios will actually help define this, but maybe, like, maybe the fact that the little boy was asleep in a room he shouldn't have been, that's the dream. But the fact that the door is, you know, like I'm trailing off in my own sentence because this is the big who knows part of the movie mm-hmm. is there something outside isn't there um because because the the tandem question to who opens the door really is like who brings the disease into the house yeah right? uh, Some, i see someone gets sick and we don't quite know what the sequence is um and we're not gonna know ultimately because three of our candidates are killed in the, uh, the 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 scuffle at the end, and all we know for sure is that Travis does get sick. Sorry, Abe, he does get sick and die. It's okay. I kind of expected that. Right, but we're left with mom and dad, and we don't know if they're sick, and that's that's kind of where it ends. Can I ask um, you a very quick clarifying question? Is the red door the front door of the house? It's actually it's actually the back door of the house. That's <laughs> the back door of the house. Okay. Well, okay. it's like it's actually the it's the second to back door. That so there's. Basically, they have a well. They have a room that functions as like an airlock, essentially. So they yeah. have like they have a room. They have like a back door that opens into a space, and then there's the red door, and that's like the the barrier door between the rest of the house. And, and, and so the, there's this there's this extra zone that they've kind of walled off, and it's got plastic sheeting and everything, and that's where I guess they quarantine people if, if yes. need. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 I mean, visually, what the point they're hammering home is that like, don't go beyond the red door. Red means stop, right? And they're particular about there's only one key, just like Aaron described. And so, you're left with this question of how how could it have been opened? Mm-hmm. In addition to like who who did the opening, whether it was open from the outside somehow or someone on the inside as a traitor. Um, now it, it's it's weird to say this, but I just because the movie has no answers. But I would say in the in the logic of my own mind, um, having a film that already has an post-apocalyptic world, it seems like it'd be a little much to also add a supernatural force in within that world. That seems like stacking two impossible things on top of each other. So I'd be less inclined to think that there is some kind of evil monster creeps, you know, something from the upside down or whatever, kind of lurking outside there. <laughs> a Demogorgon? Um, as opposed to just, you know, other evil humans. And I only say that just because Will and Paul do encounter other humans on their path to get back to Will's place, and they do kill them, but there could be... And so, by my own logic, not necessarily that's my final thought on this answer, but it would make... It would make the most sense to me if there was, you know, members of this same group of the people that Paul and Will killed that, like, followed them back or were able to find Paul's house and found the dog and did whatever they did to the dog and found a way to broke into the house and what have you. And it's all fairly lot. It's fairly it's grounded in a level of reality in far as far as how these things played out. That's that's like the that's like the most easy way to to say it from from one perspective. And you're, you're kind of reiterating what my criticism is which is that you're you're right it would be too much upon too much to also have some kind of supernatural entity stalking mm-hmm. in the forest but the fact that the film seems comfortable alluding to that in ways that just kind of stir the pot a little bit more kind of throw it into the realm of like a little bit gimmicky a little bit too happy to confuse us and keep us guessing when it's like no you don't need to do this i think the one maybe the the freeze frame that would actually 
clarify this? It certainly would for me. I didn't get a good look at what's wrong with the dog. Has the dog erupted in the kind of signature boils that we associate with the disease, in which case the dog is dying or dead because it's sick? Or has the dog been... So Abe, we see we see the dog on the floor. It's been slashed and bloodied. It's it's bleeding out all over the yeah. place. I couldn't get a clear sense of whether or not it's because the, that's what the disease like ravages its body, or if it's been like sliced open, as in somebody murdered it, or like a large animal uh, slashed at it. Mm-hmm. Right, Aaron. So like that would that would go a long way in clarifying whether or not someone is out getting revenge and killed the dog and dumped it on their doorstep or whether or not, you know, something else is going on. That's more sinister. Them being in the woods, the other logical thing could be an animal did attack the dog. The dog then wounded, found its way back to the house. And then Travis in a sedomulous state, you know, opened the door, hearing the noises of the dog and then woke up and found the dog, like that kind of thing. Like, so it could be just another animal affected the dog. Like that could be another way to look at it. Um, and they do point out that animals can get sick too. Yes, right? because the immediate concern from Paul is that because the dog is in the house bleeding and that Travis and the others touched it, they could be getting sick. And to go further, Andrew, in my eyes, he gets sick. There's no reason for Will to try to leave the house with his family if it's because everybody's fine. There's, there's no reason to leave. That just makes no That's sense to me. That's a good motivation. <laughs> I mean, it's because they don't want you know they don't want to kill they don't want Andrew to get have to be murdered or whatever they want or they want them to they want to all leave the house and just you know move on if the only other option is killing their son um forgot where i was going uh, but something about the dog well yeah if the dog i mean as far as the dog yeah it's terrible performance <laughs> <laughs> what's the dog's name stanley stanley yes it's played by mikey yeah, probably friend of the director. It's got to be. <laughs> Always doing, you know, special things to get in movies. Classic Mikey. Hollywood. Um. Yeah, Aaron, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's like, it's a movie that's designed to send us going in circles as we try to parse mm-hmm. through all the, all the ambiguities of it. I mean, if you stay with the idea that this is ultimately Travis's story then maybe the fact that he and his naivete or his carelessness ends up being the the thing that's everyone's undoing because he carelessly opens that door. I mean, that would maybe be in line with, yeah, you know, seeing everything from his perspective, the, the highs and the lows. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's um, having such intense dreams, I think, suggests that he, beyond just waking up and walking around aimlessly, he's also perhaps unconsciously walking around and doing certain things too. So this just occurred to me. There's also a, a, a strand in the film about him kind of wanting to rebel against his father's authority. Yeah. Right. And so maybe whether consciously or unconsciously kind of opening that door, which, which symbolizes like his father's kind of ironclad control over the space is his own act of rebellion. The irony of course is that it gets everybody killed. Yeah. My my issue with the door, actually, by the way, is that Paul is the only one that has the key. And if he doesn't have the key, Sarah, his wife, has the key. So my when when they're sleeping, it's like, where's this key? Because it feels like they wouldn't just willingly leave the key like lying around. So I'm curious, like how did? Because you can't just open like it's the, the door right. when it's left ajar. It's not broken open. It's just open. So it's like, how did this happen? Like, <laughs> like also that's also a detail that ought to immediately eliminate the little boy from yeah. suspicion, right? Uh huh. 
Like, did he, like, crawl, crawl in bed with them, slip the key from, like, around his neck? Go and open the door, and then and then just like lie down and fall asleep in the fireplace. Get fucking yeah, real, because that yeah, that's 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 <laughs> like that, that's JFK territory as far as conspiracies involving what this little boy is capable of, who we know nothing. Gary about. Oldman He's, is in this movie. Everybody's in this movie. John Candy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, unlocked uh, well, well, Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon. He unlocked doors played by Walter Matthau. That's Donald, crazy. Donald Sutherland. And you know, uh, you know, you know where that door is located. Back into the left. Back into the left. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you a question, Aaron? Yeah. When did people start leaving your theater? Like around what part? Of, what part of the time in the movie? Uh, how many people left my? I think only one, two people left my theater. Um, oh. And it was towards the end of the movie. I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't. Okay. It wasn't early. It was towards the end of the movie um, when things were kind of. Because there's a point where after certain characters are eliminated, things get pretty. The editing gets quicker um, and things get fuzzier. And that's when even the mood of the theater kind of changed at that point where I started like, okay, I get it. There's people that are not into what's go what the movie's selling. They're not buying into it. Uh, there was one guy um, who really surprises me that people are walking up because you're right. The movie isn't, doesn't deliver the kind of shock and awe that you might want out of a horror film. Uh-huh. But at the same time, it's not free of tension and it's very clearly building toward confrontation. Right. So there is suspense to it that I, I'm surprised that people just kind of abandoned midway through. Yeah, I like, never, I never understand ultimately, it. Ultimately, ultimately, there's no payoff. Um, I don't want to say no payoff, but ultimately, the payoff is potentially disappointing. But there is a ride to be had, right? It is there is suspense that builds and crescendos. So I'm really surprised that people just kind of gave up on it midway through. Yeah, that's it. It's strange to me. I have no idea how to read those kind of people, but yeah, there it is. Um, I will say there's one guy that who walked in at the, he, it was the kind of, and I hate judging people just from looking at him, but it was the kind of guy that walked in probably like early, early twenties at most, um, <laughs> bleached hair has a look of kind of like a surfer bro. And I was like, this guy's not going to like this movie. And sure enough, cause he sat like behind me into the, he sat, he sat back into the left of me. Um, <laughs> uh, at the end of the movie, when the credits come on, cause it's, it ends fairly abruptly. It kind of gives you a, a final shot and then cuts to black and then, you know, directed by and all that. Uh, but the the same guy is like that was the worst movie I've ever seen. And I was like, yeah, that's the that's the response I kind of expected, dude. That's <laughs> so, the worst movie I've ever seen. Ever. I'm gonna next door and watch the Mummy yeah. for my third time. He's gonna he's gonna love the Mummy in that Hashtag case. Dark Universe, <laughs> bro. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Anything poor else dude. about the? Uh... Sorry, what? No, just poor, uh, poor frat bro surfer dude oh, oh, yeah <laughs> we are hope he's not a listener <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was like aaron the screening yeah it was aaron he's talking about me now on the podcast <laughs> I thought that was me can i ask a question for you guys both then yeah um you guys seem to have this uh, kind of agreement that it is uh, mystery and horror and whatever else. I mean, from the trailers, I'm getting the sense of, you know, uh, man is like the the cruelest animal kind of thing. Is that? It feels like that's not what this movie is about, though, because it certainly. You guys are saying that the director kind of puts in these, uh, you know, these these moods of depression, perhaps, and also of grief, and so I don't know if it's. That's why I kept on asking, like. 
is Paul against Will, or is it uh, just something that is beyond those two, yeah. beyond It that. does have that element of these two, I think I said earlier, these kind of alpha males, kind of each protecting their own, and they, they come into conflict with each other. But, like, there is a genuine external threat, right? We don't always know what the source of this is. But, I mean, there is a, a disease. It will kill you. There is need for caution. So it's not in their heads. But in terms of, like, man is the most dangerous animal or, or whatever it is you said, there there is an element of um, people's inabilities to trust each other or the constant kind of distrust and second-guessing and paranoia is what un, is their undoing. I, I think that's a pretty... I think stark theme. I, I think I, I'm leaning toward the importance of that theme all the more because I'm kind of projecting Kresha into this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the, the way I've been describing this movie in my head to myself is it's night of the living dead without zombies. Um, and by that, I mean, it's, which, which is, uh, what I generally like about zombie movies is the fact that they're very, because the monsters are so uninteresting because they're nothing but just walking corpses. They have no character. They have no personality, uh, depending on how the film decides to use that. Uh, the best ones, which are the the first Romero ones and some others, including like Shaun of the Dead, because it's an homage, but also it's very focused on character. It's the movies that focused on the characters. And Night of the Living Dead in particular, it is focused on a mainly a single location with people that have incredible trust issues and yep. you know ba- and battles for who's to be on top and how to deal with a situation and what kind of logical holes there are in each other's plans and what have you and that's what this movie is this movie is basically i mean it's pitting joel edgerton and christopher abbott against each other uh, because as mike you said they're two alpha males that are both trying to protect their own but at the same time ideally would be able to work together but these heightened circumstances pretty much make that impossible even if there's a shared truce for a time being the nature of these two guys who need to do everything they can if it means protecting their family, it's going to lead to a breaking point. Um, much like Night oh. of the Living Dead. I mean, that movie operates on a different level for different reasons, but I mean, the, this movie is... It has it has a focus on these two on these two groups of people and how they interact and what have you. Um, and so in terms of what you're asking as far as being a kind of a man against man or man against nature type thing or what have you, it's less overt than like The Witch, which The Witch, there is a witch. There's multiple witches, actually. Right, there but is, I mean, we actually is... had a great discussion with the witch, though. We we kind of talked about how it was it was the witch was kind of an element of the movie, but also there's so much within Puritanism, pure, yes. pure, Puritanism, yeah, Puritans, yeah. and yeah. the dynamic of that family. That that's really what was. Uh, basically yeah. the main more center of the story yeah things were already stressful for those characters in that movie and then adding an actual witch to it does not help um this yeah. movie it's Thanks. less it, it's less what? overt as far as having an actual like force of darkness that the camera looms over and watches you know destroy a baby and all that stuff but it still has yeah, yeah. this kind of that an element to it that adds to the horror that's going on but what you're saying abe is that the fact that we get the question of whether or not there's actually a witch. Like, that's one of the opening scenes of the movie, right? We see a right. witch doing these ghastly things. It kind of takes off the table this question of, well, is it all in their head? Are they hallucinating? And so we can just move past it and focus right. on more interesting themes about Puritanism and patriarchy and a lot of these, it, it really, what makes that film, I, I think, really remarkable. Mm-hmm. With this, With this film... Like I said, there is this threat, and where I get really confused about this kind of 
chamber drama playing out between these two heads of family asserting dominance, uh, getting into these squabbles when they should be working together to protect themselves you know, as a unit. I'm not clear about what the solution is supposed to be because it's not a matter of like, listen, if these two guys would just set their egos aside and work together, then they would have all been fine. But that's not really the case because there's right. this intervening element of like who opened the door, mm -hmm. right? And if Travis did it for unconscious reasons or he did it for because he has his own agenda or the little kid somehow did it because he's actually evil, I don't know, um, <laughs> right? Like then it what ends up becoming their downfall is something that was completely separate from this this, this sort of tension between the two so-called alpha males, right? It completely bypasses their kind of petty differences and it just kind of comes in anyway. What I do like is that these guys could be friends. Like, I mean, we keep talking, we keep referring to them as alpha males as if like, you know, they're, they're two guys that just are, have an inability to get along. And I, Mike, you just pointed out they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, it's certainly not the case. Like they are guys that, they both, have, I think they both have a level of respect for each other. They still see what they're trying to do and what have you. I, I think Will goes out of his way to be genu genuinely nice to Paul in a situation and what have you. Whether or not he's lying about the nature of where he came from with his family or whatnot, that even seems besides the point. Because regardless of the mystery surrounding him and his family, I do think he genuinely just wants to do the best for them. And if that means fudging the truth a bit about where he came from it's still in service of, of keeping the family safe. I don't think there's ever an instance where Will is trying to kind of, you know, kill Paul, kill the family, and then just take the house for himself. That never, it never seems like there's an animosity or a, an, a maliciousness in this character. It's just more of a means to survive angle. Um, and, it, and so seeing, and, you know, seeing the different character, the two different families blend together because of this, um, it is, you know, Obviously, the film's a drama. It is a shame that things don't work out because these people do seem to be getting along, despite the fact that there's this world-destroying virus out there that's causing a problem. Which is why it's so important, this question of, like, if we allow that the most likely candidate for who opens the door is Travis, then it be and, and it's reasonable because we see so much of the film kind of filtered through his nightmare vision of, like, processing what's happening around him. Mm-hmm. It, it really rests on this question of why would Travis open the door? And I think given that so much of the action of the film is oriented toward can these two men, Paul and Will, trust each other, um, Travis's agency and his ability to kind of make decisions for himself is so subsumed by that drama between the two other guys that he, like, that's the context in which you have to understand why he may be acting a certain way or, or acting out in a certain way. Um, it just, it, it, makes me lean all the more toward this interpretation I suggested a few minutes ago that this is like an act of rebellion um, against this kind of nonsense uh, uh, chamber drama that's going on upstairs between two guys who really ought to be getting along for their own survival and yet can't because because just distrust kind of poisons everything. I think that makes you know some of the most sense. Now I'm going to posit another idea that's even wilder. <laughs> um, what if... What if all of them are have always been sick um, all along, both families, and just the nature of this disease, which is pretty ill-defined besides it eventually ravages your body, um, what if it just takes its time within characters to different degrees and it gets to Travis for whatever reason, which just makes his mind start playing tricks on him? Mm. Uh, sure. 
<laughs> it's it's a leap uh given the logic of the film but at the same time it's like they're worried about this virus which seems to consume all of them to some degree at, at you know, by the end of the film um, or at least it, it would it would have um if certain things played out differently um but again that's i mean the film's lack of a giant exposition dump the lack of a clarity on what's exactly happening how far this 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 threat to the society as has gone across the world or what have you like it it makes the film more interesting because you're you're in tune to just these specific characters and so you have to go along with what they're saying as opposed to just like coasting along and letting things happen a lot as they do it, it is what makes it interesting and i don't think we would have been talking about it as long as we have if it wasn't interesting mm-hmm. but i would also say again that it does spill over into being a little opaque at times yes which is yeah film yeah and i I think it's the kind of film where i gave it like a four out of five i'm going to talk in like specific numbers but at the same time i can't wait to see it again and i look forward to probably you know bumping it up if not by the end of the year but then over time as far as horror movies i really like for various a variety of reasons and you know i'm happy to champion and bring up in conversation when it comes to what are the good horror movies that you've seen in recent years this is one that like like you just said mike we spent a lot of time discussing because i think it has a lot of things to offer um if it has minor flaws based off how it decides to pay off certain things and just how you know uh, ambiguous or opaque it is in telling you things that you might have wanted to know that comes with the terror. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a it's a younger filmmaker. He's doing what he can. He's making something that's different from the norm. Um, it's a solid movie, and it's definitely going to be one of the best horror films of the year. I mean, I'm. Oh I yeah. I, yeah. Wow. I don't know, okay. Don't know about Annabelle creation, and uh, which and, looks kind of good. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, Isn't there a film? Is it Ouija? There Whereas was the, the first Ouija the, wasn't good, but then Ouija Origins was. The second one is actually pretty fantastic. Yeah. Yes, it is. That's, that's what Aaron the, says. Well, yeah, well, because the, the first Ouija was just like, a, we have this, let's see if we can make it work, and it doesn't. But the second right. one, they got director Mike Flanagan, who I really like from other films, on board, and he's like, I'm going to go on with this. And so he made his own... It's the kind of movie where he know he knows what he's he knows what he's getting into as far as like, well, if it's going to be a, you know, a follow-up to Ouija, I'm going to do the best damn follow-up I can to that kind of movie. And it's still not perfect, but it's very entertaining, much more so than the first one. Annabelle, this one's from the director of the sequel, Creation, which is a prequel, I guess, sorry. Uh, It's from the director of Lights Out, which I liked last year. I think Lights Out was a... It was quite good for um, going from a three-minute short to a fleshed-out full movie. Um, I thought it did a really good job. I can't say that Annabelle Creation's going to be, you know, amazing, but at the same time, if it has the same kind of care that the Ouija prequel got... I at least think I'll get something that's more entertaining than Annabelle, which was a really bad movie. <laughs> so... <laughs> and uh, how high are your hopes for Saw 8? Um, I think it's Saw Legacy, if pretty, I'm not mistaken. Um, I be pretty high. D- despite the fact that I've seen every Saw movie and could mostly tell you how those things played out, I've never been a fan of the Saw movies. Um, so I, I don't really expect much from a you know, the, the past it's prime series, it's coming back because why not? So we'll see. I actually, so I've never read uh, Stephen King's it. And since the film is coming out in is it September, yeah, September, I just, I went, I ordered it. I thought, yeah, I could read this over the summer. Why mm-hmm. not read it in time for the film? And then it arrived and it's like 1100 pages. Max. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fucking epic dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
wish I wish wish I'd known that before I clicked uh, before I abused that Amazon Prime. Haven't you Maybe seen that you can VH- to it on tape? Haven't you seen that VHS? It's two tapes. Two tapes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I must have I must have forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I would. I mean, it's another so, one where uh, we talk. The, the end of my coffee table. So I. <laughs> Well, it's another one where it has—it looks like it has potential, but I—I I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, as far—I mean, granted, there are other kind of horror films that from like indie directors and you know studios like A24 that could also come out this year that we might not even know about yet, or at least they're more or less under the radar compared to you know the more obvious ones. But yeah, I would. I don't think it comes at night's going to go away for me as far as movies I regard as really good horror films that go away as, you know. Didn't we see? Uh, we saw Bye Bye Man together, didn't we? Oh yeah, the Bye, yeah, future classic, the Bye Bye Man. Yeah, that that one. Yeah. That one's on oh, number bye. one. That's number bye one. Man. I mean, uh, this, this, but this is a strong number two right now. That's, That's January cool. release. Yeah. I think I read a review once that that said it's almost as if the film was tailor made for January release. That's how oh, bad wow. the film was, and is presumably. There was another film that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, a couple times actually, from A two four. January. No, not from January, but um, uh, from just a couple weeks ago, it came out on Blu-ray recently, uh, called The Black Coat's Daughter, which I I really enjoyed as well, uh, mainly for stylistic purposes. I think it's a really well-made film as far as how it's constructed, its soundtrack, its score, and what have you. I think it's really strong as well, um, which is on... I yeah. found it a little... Like, that's another one that's, like, a little too vague for its own good. It's also... Yeah. Didn't you find it very underlit? No, I. I mean, I don't know. I I, I, I reviewed the Blu-ray. It looked great. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I I. It was my screening. It's it's not the it's not on the level of it comes at night. I wouldn't say that. But as far as the kind of aesthetic it had, I really liked it. I, I really I really dug that a lot about it. The uh, director of that film is uh, Oz Perkins. He's uh, Tony Perkins' son. Yeah, Anthony. Yeah, I mentioned that Anthony Perkins, the director. Uh, sorry, the star. Norman Bates of Psycho. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else about it comes at night on this episode of Nights? Nights. No. I think we've. Uh, I think we're both recommending the film. Certainly, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I would. I would certainly say catch the film if you're. If you've listened this far, haven't seen it, and aren't concerned about how much we spoiled the film. Although I think we've, despite going over very. You've a pretty good job of of being vague when you need to be, but also giving enough information. So that uh, I can understand what's going on. Well, because again, I think the the things that happen in the film are more or less inevitable. For one thing, like Abe, you guessed that Travis would probably perish in this film, and you know I don't yeah. think it's beyond the reason to think that yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. And Mike, you mentioned yourself, it's a very nihilistic film. So I mean, just regardless of character fates, I I don't think you can really ruin the experience of watching this film by talking about what happens in it. Well, I also think that you guys kind of I mean the big things that you guys dropped were just that. There, you're not going to see anything that is extraterrestrial or paranormal or anything like that. So, with that out of the way, it just becomes a, a character piece, which is what it uh, is. And I, one, well, other, one other thing, props to the movie for making the family interracial and yeah. bothering not bothering to go out of its way to have to explain that or work it into its symbolism. As far as I know, it's um, alleged shit. He's killing it in those roles, man. Thumbs up. Oh yeah, get out to the other good horror film of this year that i was just thinking about yeah there we go okay. totally forgot that was this year it felt like uh last year but get yeah, out which is like which is march pr- pretty much one of my favorite movie of the year right now i should probably think yeah. about that more often yeah, strange i'd forgotten that too yeah. it was like the movie of the moment and yet 
that we've moved on. Well, I think it's been a few months, and that's moved. That's even, even though it's a whore, it's very different from this movie. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's operating on other levels, uh, very effective ones, but still, you know, different levels. Um, but yeah, no, I, it comes at night, um, which at the time of this recording is currently in theaters. Um, it's not a hugely expensive movie, so it's already. At this point, it's already made back its budget technically, but I certainly support people oh, seeing here. it. Just to, yeah, to support. Although, support. although I read that the budget on this was five mil. Yeah, seems a little high to me. Uh, I mean, it seems I I, I could listen. I could have done it for four. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I know just for, for a small film with like very kind of tight control locations and a very small cast that five million seemed a little that that surprised me. That's, okay. that's Stanley, you know, he he has a high asking price, that dog. Oh, yeah, so. Always Stanley again. Luxury trailers for that guy. Premium dog food. No, but I think that, you know, the actors involved, that adds up right there, and plus the kind of the location use and what have. I think $5 million is still relatively low. I, I get what you're saying. I, you can. It seems like a movie that could be, you could, it probably could be less. And that's that could just be an estimate, by the way. That's just like Wikipedia saying it's $5 million. It doesn't necessarily mean it's $5 million, But uh, It was actually $90,000. It oftentimes happens, though, I mean, as far as these kind of things. Yeah. But, uh, you know. Well, yeah, we've we've been talking about it comes at night. Um, thank you, thank you, Mike, for reaching out to talk about this because I I saw this movie. It's like Abe's probably not going to have seen it, and we're not going to go into full spoilers on this. So it's like, when am I going to have a chance to really like get into this movie? So I'm glad you reached out to to want to talk about it because this worked out well. It was nice to go over these thoughts. Yeah, yeah, and these are these are fun ones. It's fun to talk through these movies with people who kind of are literate about the genre and what it's doing well and what it's doing wrong and kind of have a repertoire of like past film knowledge to kind of draw upon. That's that just kind of enriches the conversation. So thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's been another episode out now nights. Nights. And, uh, you can, uh, you know where we can find all the other episodes of our podcast and everything over. online. Yeah. You can, you can find us, but, um, and 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 Mike has no uh, no places to to reach him at, so don't worry about that. Leave him in the woods. If you want, if you want to reach Mike, just write on our Facebook page, and we'll we'll send it to Mike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, he's a mysterious guy. I, I meant to mention this. The film had this pre- its premiere at the Overlook Film Festival in like on like off a beaten trail like in the woods like that's how they premiered this film <laughs> which sounds kind of sounds terrifying <laughs> like that sounds like the right. worst thing. that sounds that great Oh yeah, that sounds like like I'd be all I'm all about like finding a finally finding a screening where I can watch Jaws while in a raft on the water. Like I'd love to do that. You don't want to do that. I'd love to do that. But seeing this fucking movie out in the woods in the middle of nowhere in the pitch black darkness, no thank you. Like I'm not. I do not want to do that. Draw the line, right? Okay. <laughs> um. All right. Okay, guys. Uh, Mike. Mike Dillon. Thank you again for uh, joining us for this episode. Hey, Mike. Thank you, sirs. And uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Out Now Nights. Until next time, so long. Goodbye. Why?
can I accept the fact she's chosen him and simply let them be? Whoa! 